we looked at a description of a pretty discouraging jungle out there as things were getting worse and worse leading up to the time of Christ. And God used uh, vivid word pictures of these four beasts representing the uh, satanic kingdoms of that world. Uh, the first uh, one representing, of course, uh, Babylon, and then Medo-Persia was the second, Greece the third, and Rome the last. And uh, here's the encouraging thing about that. Those were Satan's best shot at attempting to destroy God's people. Now, if he didn't succeed back then, he's not going to succeed in any period of history. Amen? Uh, our Lord is a great God. And even in the midst of that suffering, he preserved his people. Now, it did look, though, as if Satan almost might win. Uh, there's a number of verses that indicate that. In verse 7, you can just imagine the messy scene, uh, almost worse than the cookie monster, only this time devouring bodies and blood and saliva everywhere and trampling the bones and the things of those that he was not able to eat. Look at verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. Now, verse 20 interprets that as, quote, the beast was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. There was a sense in which Satan was winning the battle. The beast was winning. The saints were losing. And so it was a, a horrible a period of history. There was apostasy, widespread persecution. Look at verse 25. It says, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. And so uh, we've got a description of a time when things really could not have gotten worse. Suddenly, when you get to verses 9 through 14, you have quite a shift. Instead of having us focus on how terrible things are on the earth, he has us look at the awesome display of God's kingdom. And I think that's a great strategy for any time that we're out there. When we become discouraged at looking at the beasts that are out there and the persecution that is happening, and we feel like giving up, rather than looking at the giants in the land, he wants us to focus our attention on heaven on the awesome power uh, of God. Uh, this is why uh, John the Baptist and Christ spoke about the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Daniel had prophesied in their day the kingdom of heaven was about to move upon the kingdoms of this earth. That's why Christ taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, heaven is the pattern after which everything on earth needs to be measured. And so what we're going to do in verses 9 through 10, we're going to take a look at three quick snapshots of the nature of this kingdom of heaven. First of all, scene number one is in verses 9 through 10, we see the power and the awesome majesty and, and authority of this kingdom. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. 
Uh, God's power is so great that he doesn't need to rant and rage like the beast did. Uh, very calm and in control, he deliberates, makes his judgment, and it is done. That brings encouragement to God's people. It is not a situation out of control. When God judges, when he brings his judgment, it is done. What I want you to notice here, though, is that God allows others to enter into that judgment of the beast. Uh, notice the phrase in verse 9, the first phrase, I watched till thrones, plural. I watched till thrones were put in place. It was not just God's throne that is being described, but the thrones of others are described as well, as we'll see in a moment. Uh, this is an image of God's people being seated together with Christ in the heavenlies. Take a look at the last phrase uh, there in verse 10. It says, the court was seated and the books were opened. And uh, the previous phrase, when you get the interpretation of the angel later on, you see the previous phrase of those millions of people, they're part of that court that is bringing judgment. It's, a, it's an awesome uh, display that is being talked about there. Now, why would God bother with a court? We know God can judge on his own. He is the source of all justice. And we might think, uh, things could get along much better and much more quickly if God would just bring his judgments. Why does he mess around with a court? Wouldn't it be quicker the other way? Well, that is not the way that God works. As verse 22 says, he wants the saints to possess the kingdom. As verse 27 says, he wants the saints to take dominion. Now, I've got a, a word uh, picture that may help you uh, to lay hold of this concept, and it's the conquest of Canaan. You read Hebrews 4, and you'll see that they say that was typical of the conquest that we are making with the gospel, only we don't use a sword of metal. We use the two-edged sword of the word of God, but we have a greater Joshua. The name Jesus is the same in the Greek for Joshua, Jesus, Joshua. We have a greater Joshua who was leading the way. Now, the point was, God had given Israel the conquest of Canaan. It was as good as done. It was a gift. It's yours. But they still had to follow him into the land of Canaan and take the battle to possess their possessions, to possess what had been given to them. Well, in the same way, Matthew 28, Christ says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore. Okay, it's already legally ours. It's already legally Christ. The nations belong to him. But we need to go into the world, discipling the nations, taking the possessions that belong to the saints. And I believe this helps to explain why verse 12 says it's not an instantaneous overnight overthrow of the fourth beast, the Roman Empire, or any other beast that might come along. The coming of the kingdom happens as saints enter more and more into their privilege in heaven. As they enter more and more into the courtroom of heaven and begin to pray down God's judgments upon the nations. As they pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is certainly not being done on earth as it is in heaven right now, but we are praying more and more that that would happen. Now, I preached two sermons uh, some time ago when we took our break from Daniel as background to this. Uh, the, the first one dealt with the same concept is Revelation chapter 8, where we have the beast. It's the fourth Roman Empire, and we see how the prayers of the saints enter into that. The prayers of the saints go up to the throne room, and there's that half hour of silence where nothing happens in heaven. 
God is not acting until the saints pray. The angels are not acting until the saints pray. But when those prayers ascend, like incense, it says he takes those prayers, he casts them upon the ground, and there are thunderings, lightnings, earthquake, and noises. And then one after another, there are trumpets that are blown as regiment after regiment of angels begin to aid us in the conquest of the land, uh, as it were. And so in a very real sense, we have a part to play in the judgment of the beast. We are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Now, the second passage I preached on was Luke 18, where Christ gave the parable of the persistent widow to show that we must not lose heart in praying that the church would be vindicated. Here's his conclusion at the end of that parable. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. That's Christ instructing us on how to pray. Do we really have the right to make those kinds of judgments or to enter into, more appropriately, to enter into Christ's judgments? Yes, we do. 1 Corinthians 6.3 says, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Are we presently reigning with Christ? Yes, Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 says we have been caught up with Christ above all principalities and powers. We are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Revelation 1 says Christ has already made us kings and priests to reign with him. And when you can once grasp the awesome power, I mean, it's almost like a a nuclear reactor, the stream of fire that's proceeding from the throne. And you realize we have a part in, the, in what is happening in heaven as the heavenly kingdom comes upon earth. It will be tremendously encouraging to you. In Sunday school some years back, I showed how Revelation was a war manual instructing us on how to take the authority that is ours in Christ Jesus. You know, so many times people become discouraged, terribly discouraged, like the ten spies who went into Canaan because they see all of these giants or they see in the language of Daniel, there are still beasts around there. There's tyranny. There's all kinds of persecution. And we're so focused on the negative down here that God says, no, I want you to look up at heaven. See the authority that you have in Christ and begin to take your possessions based not on your victory, but the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so while verses 9 through 10 are an awesome description of the power of God's kingdom and of Christ's kingdom, I don't want you to miss out on the fact we enter into that. We are a part of that. Our prayers are so, so important. Now that's scene one. In verses 11 to 12, it shows the results in scene two, the results of these judgments of God and of the saints, and it promises that Rome uh, will be burned and that the later beasts which may arise uh, will also, uh, their time is numbered. It says, I watched then, because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking, I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. Uh, Revelation picks up that imagery and it talks about Rome uh, destined to be sacked and burned, and it was. God's judgment fell upon Rome just as surely as it fell upon the previous beast, uh, the, the, the kingdom of Greece, and Medo-Persia before that, and Babylon before that. And uh, he indicates that the time for the rest of the beasts is numbered as well. As for the rest of the beasts, he says in verse 12, now some people have said, 
Well, since Rome is destroyed, the rest of the beasts must be referring to beast number one, two, and three. Well, they were destroyed already before beast number four was destroyed. He's talking about any other kind of satanic governments and tyrannical governments that may arise. And if you compare in Revelation where he uses this analogy, you see he talks about other beasts, the beast from the land as well as the beast from the sea. Any tyrannical satanic government that may be around is subsumed under the rest of the beasts. So he, he says, but as for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I think that is such a healthy reminder to Christians who want instant results. We are just not prepared to wait for 100 or 200 years. We want it now. And the Lord says, no, there is a time scale for all of this. Your efforts are involved, but there is a time scale. For, as for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. That was God's strategy when Israel took over the land of Canaan. It was not overnight. He said, lest the land be empty and the wild beasts take over, and they fail to take dominion. He says, I will drive them out little by little. Well, now we don't have a physical sword. We have the sword of the Spirit. It converts people, turns them from enemies into God's people. But it is a gradual progress that is given over time. Question, when was the dominion and the authority in all nations given to Christ? Well, Christ tells us in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Question, when do the nations stop rebelling against Christ? When do they start submitting to Christ? Well, it's a gradual process over time. He says that we're to go into all the world. We're to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And I think that's the same kind of process we see in verse 12. The point of time that these verses are talking about, dominion of the beast was taken away. They were given to Christ. But as verse 22 talks about, the act of possessing those kingdoms is something that is prolonged over time. And so we still have tyranny. We still have bestial governments that need to be tamed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Progress has been made. In fact, if you look at that, first, that fourth beast that was talked about then, the taking over of Rome uh, went phenomenally fast. By the time of Constantine, uh, some historians tell us that, that the estimates are that over 50% of the Roman Empire had made profession of faith in Christ. That's under persecution. That's when it was not a very cool thing to be a Christian. And so there was an enormously fast taking over of that beast. But he says, one down, you know, there's several more to go. And uh, it's going to be a process over time. So that's the, third, uh, the second scene. The third scene tells us when all of this began to happen, and it describes Christ, the beast tamer. Now, verse 13 describes Christ's ascension and his coronation. Verse 14 describes the subsequent conquest. Let's read verse 13. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Now that phrase, the Son of Man, is the title that Christ most frequently described himself as in the Gospels. And the Jews recognized he was talking about being the Messiah. I want you to flip with me to Matthew 26 and see why when he applied himself to this divine figure in here, they considered it blasphemy. Matthew 26, verses 63 through 66. <clears throat> 
But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter, and the Greek there is aparti, literally from this point on, from now on, uh, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him, etc. Now, why do I read that extended passage? Well, first of all, to show the calmness with which Christ faced the beasts. And secondly, to show the confidence with which Christ spoke when he said, from this point on, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. You're going to see, as Daniel 7 talked about, the kingdom of heaven impacting the kingdoms of this world. You're going to see the books open. You're going to see the taming of some of these beasts that Daniel 7 talked about. Now let's go back to Daniel 7.13. Let's read that again. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Did you catch what period of time that this is at? It's not at the second coming when Christ is going to be coming on the clouds of heaven from the Ancient of Days to the earth. This is talking about the ascension of Christ when he comes as he went out of the disciples' sight on the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days. That little preposition, very, very important. I talked with one um, uh, teacher at uh, Westminster Seminary who was insisting that this is talking about the second coming of Christ, and I said, well, what do you do with that little preposition to there? It's clearly talking about the ascension. He says, oh, we, we shouldn't uh, quibble about words. Uh, he says that uh, you shouldn't take at face value every little word. Christ says we should live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And I think it's very clear there. He's talking about uh, the ascension of Christ. And so the time period that he's talking about is from the time of Christ's ascension on, the saints are beginning more and more to enter into their privilege in heaven. From the time of, the, of Christ's ascension on, it is that Rome begins to fall and to begin to be tamed by the beast tamer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, some people uh, wonder, you know, if uh, the reason Constantine finally converted is he was recognizing Christianity was spreading so fast, if you can't lick him, you might as well join him. And whether that was a good thing or a bad thing, some people argue that that was the start of the downfall. But there was a phenomenal success of the gospel in Rome. Now, verse 14 speaks of the results. Then, and the then refers to the ascension, to the timing of verse 13. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Now, there are many people who fear the future, and they think that things are going to get worse and worse until finally the church is destroyed. Uh, one commentator says that uh, there will be as few Christians, true believers, at the time of Christ's second coming as people who left Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And yet this passage says it's impossible. The church cannot be destroyed. The kingdom of Christ will never be destroyed. Christ says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's not talking about us in the gates. He's talking about hell being behind gates. And we're battering down the gates. We're taking the advance of the gospel. In Isaiah 9, after it talks about the kingdom resting upon that child's shoulders, unto us a child is born, it says of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. It's not going to be up for a little bit and then downhill the rest of history. It will never stop increasing. Do you get that? He says it will never be destroyed. And as verse 12 has already hinted, the days of bestial kingdoms is numbered. And to me, that is an encouraging, such an encouraging piece of news. Now, if you want a label for this, it's called post-millennialism. Okay? I don't usually like to give labels because it tends to divide people, but there's so much confusion on this. People will read books that they have in their homes, and it's helpful to sort out some of the stuff that is out there if you know the different systems. Uh, the premillennialists uh, say that this uh, verse... Uh, verses uh, uh, 13 and, and 14 there are going to be happening in the future and, uh, and uh, it's at that time that Christ receives his kingdom. Um, it's really only post-millennialists and if you're generous, optimistic amillennialists who are really the same as post-millennialists uh, but only those ones can take account of this because most brands of amillennialists see things as getting worse and worse up to the time of Christ uh, rather than this passage, which describes it as advancing over time. The cross of Christ is at the center of history. It reverses history. It does not repeat history. There was a, re there was a, a going down to the time of Christ when all finally abandoned Christ, and from that time on, there is a reversal of history. Now, people many times just want the bottom line. They don't have patience for eschatology and the doctrine of the future. They say, Phil, we loved your sermon on Daniel in the lion's den. You know, chapters 1 through 6 is great, but please, do we have to study 7 through 12? I mean, eschatology, what difference does it make? Let's just leave that be because this is a doctrine that divides various people. Some people say, you know, I'm a pan-millennialist because I just believe it'll all pan out in the end. Other people call themselves pro-millennialists. They say, who knows, whatever it is, I'm for it. You know, if God's for it, I'm for it. And they say, their attitude really says, it's unimportant to me. Well, what I want to convince you in the next couple of minutes is that it makes a great deal of difference what you believe on that. And let me tell you that the, uh, some of the leaders in the different camps on this viewpoint, they're godly brothers in Christ, but they will agree with me that it makes a practical difference in how we think and act right now. For example... One premillennialist said, if the Bible teaches premillennialism, then we should be involved in this present world in a different way than someone who is postmillennial. I think it does make that difference. Herman Hanko, an amillennialist, says, the implications of eschatology cut through the whole of life of the child of God. I agree. Rush Dooney, a postmillennialist like myself, says, Quote, if I believe that the world will see the progressive triumph of Christ's people until the whole world is Christian and a glorious material and spiritual era unfolds, in other words, if I believe the Great Commission is a realistic commission that it will be fulfilled, it's basically what he's saying, I shall be motivated very much differently from either a premillennial or an amillennial believer. Thus, we cannot hold that these differing doctrines of eschatology are a matter of indifference. They make a very great difference in how we view the world and our work and our future in it. The kind of faith we have governs the whole of our lives and our total outlook. So please, 
Bear with me. Do not write off chapters 7 through 12. They're very important chapters. Uh, Let me give you a few of many, many reasons why this does make a big difference. First, without this view of the future, it's very easy for us to become so discouraged that we retreat from any involvement in culture and in politics. Now, there are people in the other camps that don't, but it's very easy for us to be motivated in that. And yet it's important that we be involved in culture. The old scholar Patrick Fairbairn said of this passage that this passage speaks of the imperative of Christians remodeling the state and every level of society throughout its social fabric into a society reflecting God's principles. I agree. Another author said, quote, every aspect of life throughout the world is to be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Families, individuals, business, science, agriculture, the arts, law, education, economics, psychology, philosophy, and every sphere of human activity, unquote. Now, Daniel promises that's not only possible, it will happen some point in history. And so it's a very, very practical doctrine. Now, what happens if you believe that verse 21 applies to the future rather than, as I believe, to something that has happened in the past? Uh, Because verse 21 talks about the saints being defeated, uh, being given over to 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 the beast, the beast winning the day, as it were, at that point in history. Now, we can learn for periods of time when we're under persecution from those passages, but if we believe it's for the future, it's going to completely frame how we face the future. We're not going to be strategizing so much to win as we are how to survive. And many people, I think, have mistakenly done that. Lindsay says, quote, you don't polish brass on a sinking ship, unquote. He believes the ship is sinking, and he uses that metaphor to teach that any occupations other than evangelism are irrelevant unless they are used to promote the cause of evangelism. And I think that is a demeaning of the, uh, of the, 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 uh, the jobs that God has given to his people. Everything that we do can be done for the Lord. Amelianilus Herman Hanko said, quote, This is not a mere quibbling over words. This strikes at the heart of the millennial question. Forgotten is the fact that sin and the curse made it forever impossible for the cultural mandate to be fulfilled in this present world, unquote. Now, I praise the Lord. Amillennialists like Hanko try to be involved uh, in, the, in the cultural mandate because they believe it's commanded. But there are so many people, they look at that and they say, what's well, impossible so why should we waste the time on that? Let's, let's take time in other areas. They become discouraged from that. Uh, many have no long-term planning for their family, for their churches, for their converts, for their society, because they believe, in the words of Hal Lindsey, quote, we should live like people who don't expect to be around much longer, unquote. Well, let me tell you, when I was 20 years old, many of my friends took that at face value, and they did not want to have children because what's the point if we're coming into the time of the tribulation and the end? They did not uh, save up for college. They did not save up for retirement because they said there won't be any retirement. We're going to be out of here in a couple of years. And now that they're 45 and 50, some of them, they're really regretting their choices. You know, this same short-term approach to life has produced millions of of converts in, in Africa. Praise the Lord for that. 
but it's also meant that they've not spent much time in discipling those people and the kind of impact they can have in society. And some of the African leaders are waking up to this and have changed their theology, and they're saying, we've made a horrible mistake because in Africa, many of the African countries, there is no social impact upon the culture. No change, and there should be a change when there are so many Christians. That is the kind of effect that short-term planning can do to you. It can lead to fatalism about the future and a theology of how losing is something good. Richard B. Gaffin uh, said this, quote, until Jesus comes again, the church wins by losing. I believe that is terrible theology. It can lead to paralysis if we hold to the view of Salem Kirbin, who said, quote, We have reached the point of no return. We are on an irreversible course for world disaster. By the way, Herman Hanko said almost exactly the same thing. There's no point in trying to affect culture because we're on an irreversible course to world disaster. Now, many more examples could be given. I've given some on your discussion questions. But your view of the future is hugely impacts how you work in this world, how you think about this world. And let me tell you, your view of the future has total control over your faith concerning the future. See, if you do not believe that there is there, there are promises in the Scripture related to the future, you're not going to have the faith to possess your possessions because you don't think that they are possessions. And so it completely controls your faith by which you can take the conquest for Christ. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. That's the only place faith can be aroused. So if you don't believe that there are promises concerning the future, you're not going to be taking the conquest of the land as Christ commanded. Very, very important. After giving the paradigm of world conquest in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, But thanks be to God who gives us, that's present tense, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, does that mean we're not going to face persecution and opposition? No. Daniel prophesies that there's going to be persecution. There are going to be even martyrdoms. And that was implied by Paul. But in all those things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Even when we lay down our lives by faith, we can believe that we have advanced the cause of Christ. There were many people who lost their lives in the taking of the conquest of Canaan. It's going to be true in the taking of the Great Commission to the far reaches of the world. And so, This passage gives us a very realistic appraisal of the future and the opposition we might receive, but it also gives us an optimistic appraisal of the future. And I believe it is our job to believe and to promote the vision of verse 14 to see every nation and people and tribe not only trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, but serving him, submitting to his word. May that be something that each one of us have the faith to be a part of. Amen.